Hello, hello, friends. Thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be here with Deepak Bhargava, who is a cur currently a distinguished lecturer at the City University of New York's School of Labor and Urban Studies and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. He's a lifelong activist, organizer, and campaigner who ran Community Change, one of the country's premier support centers for grass grassroots groups in low-income communities of color for 30 years. He's campaigned on poverty, immigration, racial justice at the local, state, and national level, and has published and spoken widely. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you, Rabbi. Thanks Thank for having me. Thank you so much. So to start, I know you are um, releasing a book soon on issues of immigration. I'd love to hear a little bit about that project. Sure, yeah. So uh, the paperback edition of Immigration Matters, which is a volume I co-edited with two other professors at the City University of New York is coming out in September. And we brought together some of the country's leading activists and thinkers and scholars to reimagine what should immigration look like in the 21st century for America. So not just what are we against, the cruelty, the harm, the deportations, but what does a generous, welcoming, humane policy look like? And there's some really brilliant contributions there. And I think one of the key messages is for the country to reach its full potential, we are gonna to need to open our arms to millions of newcomers in the coming decades. Yeah. Very powerful. I'm ve I very much look forward to reading that. Um, thank you for your work. Uh, we, down here at the border, we are serving um, asylum seekers every day. And um, there's an overwhelm, as you know, we are looking now at the Afghani uh, refugees. We're looking at those fleeing Haiti from the earthquake and hurricane. Obviously, we're looking at Mexico and, and Central, Central America, not to mention parts of Africa, really around the world. And I wonder, how do you think about prioritization within this process? Um, and as a follow-up question to that, there are communities that live in, um, uh, in, uh, in poverty in America who themselves argue not from a place of hate, but from a place of, of insecurity and of lack, um, that they're not properly, their needs aren't being properly addressed, and they themselves are calling for less attention towards um, immigration. How, um, how, so firstly, how do you think about the prioritization, and how would you respond to those who yeah. are suffering in America in that regard? Yeah, you know, well, it's really important to understand that in the U.S. immigration system, we let people in for four reasons, economic, family, humanitarian, and diversity. And the United States is one of the very few countries in the world, actually the only country in the world, where a majority of the migrants and refugees are not principally coming to meet economic uh, needs. They're coming to reunite with their families or because of humanitarian disasters. And this is a unique and beautiful part of the country's DNA. Unfortunately, what's happened over the last four years is essentially our admissions have, have almost gotten to zero. And through a whole variety of, of policy mechanisms, net immigration to the country has been slowed to a trickle. So what needs to happen now is we need to open up immigration under all of those pathways, including and especially to meet the humanitarian crises in our hemisphere and around the world, many of which, by the way, the United States has played an active part unfortunately, in creating the conditions that are leading people to flee, climate change, the situation in Afghanistan, and so forth. We have a moral obligation to do so. But one of the key messages I want to really emphasize here is that there's no scarcity 
in terms of a trade-off between the well-being of immigrants and refugees and the well-being of native-born workers. In fact, the research really shows that areas that welcome large numbers of immigrants in the country are among the most prosperous in the country. Research shows that far from displacing native-born workers, immigrants add to economic growth and vitality and ultimately to the tax base. So this welcoming policy isn't just a matter of morality, although it surely is that, not just a matter of justice, although it surely is that. It's also deeply in the country's self-interest and part of how we renew ourselves. And interestingly, this year was the first year uh, in 20 years that, a, that more Americans supported greater levels of immigration than supported less uh, immigration to the United States, which I think is a remarkable turnaround. And it's partly a boomerang to seeing the effect of harsh restrictionist policies in action. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, you know, I recently heard Vice President Kamala Harris speaking in Guatemala around um, uh, how people should stay there who are fleeing corruption and economic um, economic challenges and income dispar disparity and um, and and I, I got the sense that she was also giving the message not only don't come, but the message that we should address the root causes in those countries. How do you think about this American approach of addressing root causes of why people want to leave? Yeah, I thought the statement was unfortunate, um, but the underlying point that um, migration is not by itself a solution, that people ought to have not just a right to migrate to flee dire, dire circumstances, but a right to stay in a country that is their home, where their families are, and to have a sustainable livelihood and to live with their human rights respected. And that we have a responsibility as a country, as part of our foreign po policy, to make it possible for people to stay uh, in their home country. Now that having been said, um, the truth of the matter is that when situations are so desperate, when hurricanes devastate crops, people will leave to survive. I would do it, you would do it, all of your listeners would do it. If it was a matter of our families living or dying, we would pick up and move, even though it's a desperate and dangerous journey. And then the question becomes, what is our posture towards people fleeing for their lives. And um, I believe that it is our responsibility and international interest to welcome people and to make it possible for them to integrate fully into American society. So I understand the concerns that, the, um, that there will be uncontrolled migration and I support uh, screening people who come to the United States, that we have generous but limited migration, that there are actually controls in place. But we are so far from our capacity to absorb uh, new immigrants to this country, and we have so much to gain that um, I hope we can find our way to a much, much more generous policy. Thank you. Thank you. For, you know, a, a personal question. Um, wh where does this emerge for you personally? Uh, you know, yeah. for me as a Jew, it's so easy because uh, it's not only in, in the text that I treat as sacred that it's constantly mandating this. It's Jewish history to be wandering refugees for thousands of years. And unfortunately, I think it's harder for those who don't have a family stories um, of as, as um, kind of abused immigrants um, or oppressed refugees in some sense to relate 
um, yes. because it might be a few generations back. But um, but I wonder for you where, where this where, you know how this story inter intersects. Yeah, my own family. Um, so I I emigrated from India when I was a child. My family came here um, in the late '60s, and my own story really is that they would not have been able to stay in the United States were it not for the 1965 immigration law, which finally eliminated the racial quotas that had prevented people from Asia, Latin America, and Africa from settling in the United States. So I'm a beneficiary of an earlier immigrant rights movement and an earlier civil rights movement that demanded that racial justice and equity be part of our immigration system. And my family has thrived and, and contributed to the country as a result. So I feel like you do a real obligation to pass that on and to fight for today's immigrants and refugees who are just like prior generations um, and who have just as much talent and just as much to contribute. And then, you know, the truth is once I, the spark got lit, I've now worked with, organized with thousands upon thousands of people and I've heard the stories, not just of the pain and the suffering, although I've heard lots of that. I've also heard the stories of what people wanna bring, what people wanna contribute uh, to this country and their love of family and their, um, their goodness. And um, it's hard not to be moved by that and to feel like that's our fight too. You know, I'm in the internal politics of immigrant rights movement work, I have heard a few times that um, Indian Americans, uh, Jewish Americans, Asian Americans shouldn't be centralized because they are economic success stories of immigration, whereas those in Mexico and Central America um, are really the ones who have struggled. Yeah, I, I, how do you experience kind of the, the internal politics of, of yeah. who should be at the front lines of the movement? Yeah, well, I think one thing that's really important is that especially in the times we're living in now, that discrimination and bigotry are respecting no class boundaries. So it is true that different immigrant origin groups have different uh, experiences of economic prosperity in this country. Although even within those populations, there's a fair amount of differentiation. But the truth of the matter is discrimination unfamiliarity with, with customs, rejection, in many cases with the increase of anti-Asian violence and after 9-11, a kind of wave of persecution, there is still a remarkable and unfortunate level of um, discrimination and difference that people experience. And I actually think it explains to a large degree um, why there's such intense political mobilization and the political allegiances among groups that economically may not have a lot of grievances, but are feeling the sting of being other in the society. And so that's the basis, I think, for this kind of solidarity, but that solidarity has to be worked for. And the immigrant rights movement should always put its most vulnerable and most uh, marginalized members at the center of the struggle, people who are undocumented, people who are refugees and asylees, uh, people who are low income. But for the broader community of folks who have that origin story, we have a place in the struggle, we can be part of it, and we have a vital, vital role to play. Beautiful, beautiful. One last question for you today. Um, so, you know, the, uh, uh, what do you think is the pathway towards um, economic justice on wages today, uh, towards, towards a living wage? as a stepping stone, the fight for $15 an hour as a federal 
as a federal wage? And how do we include undocumented people in that? Mm. Well, I've been privileged to be up close with the fight for 15 for many years, and it has just transformed the landscape. And when I say it, I really mean low-wage workers themselves who took history into their hands and made an idea that was once seemed impossible that almost no one would embrace into mainstream thinking. And there have been, there've been hundreds of millions of dollars of concrete benefits in people's lives. So what's next? I think two things. Number one, we need to rebuild and reconstruct the federal safety net in America. And there is crucial policy being debated now to, for example, extend the refundable child tax credit that would give thousands of dollars of income to um, low income and working class and middle class families, expand childcare and many, many other things. That is a pivotal battle to reshape social policy in the United States. Number two, the fight for 15 was originally fight for 15 and a union. And we need the union part too. And I think this is the time for a union resurgence because workers need the power to bargain with their employers for fair wages and fair treatment and voice on the job. I expect that we're gonna see um, really big mobilizations from the fight for 15 and others in the coming years uh, to expand what's possible and to build real lasting powerful organization for low wage workers in this country. Very powerful. Thank you so much for this time, for all the great work you do. Friends, please be sure to, be sure to check out Professor Bargava's books and writings. He is not only on the front lines as an activist for many decades, but a true scholar who is adding deep insight to this country as we for, continue to form the moral fabric of this nation. Have a great Thank you, Rabbi, for your work and your leadership. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much.